Okay. So, uh, I am Chris Reed. I, we are going to be talking about Mother Night. What was the other question? What do you do? What do I do? Oh, okay. Well, uh, my occupation is I'm an accountant. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I mean, that's always like a weird charged question, right? Because people are usually more than just their profession. Um, I was a liberal arts major back in the day and then turned to accountants. So, yeah. So you do accounting to pay the bills and you've got this brain for things like philosophy of religion and yeah. reading books. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, that's It's almost like a previous life. So I'm trying to get back into the reading game, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, so that's me. That's, that's a tiny slice of you. You are much more than that. Um, <laughs> so you gave me this book, Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut, um, mm-hmm. for the review on the blog. Why did you give me that book? So you were asking for books that affected the person um, a lot. And for Kurt Vonnegut, he's one of those novelists that's really just hit home. And there were two novels that I was thinking about giving you. Uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, and then Mother Night. And I felt like Mother Night really hits more people. It's just a lot more generalized. Um, Because anyone who's dealt with imposter syndrome has dealt with the themes of that book. That's interesting. Okay, so Imposter Syndrome and Mother Night. Can you give me a quick synopsis of the book before we get too far into discussing the overarching themes and stuff? Yeah, so um, I'll try to be very brief about it. So it is about uh, an American-born person who ends up being recruited to be a double agent for the German forces during World War II. And... At the end of the war, no one lays claim to him. He runs a propaganda group uh, within the German um, administration and ends up getting put on trial for his actions, um, only at the end to be receive, to receive a letter saying that his claims are substantiated. And he then still decides to commit suicide because of how confused he is about his actions during his life. This is the belated spoiler alert, but I think that's okay. I don't think there's any way to talk about this book. Without, yeah, without being... <laughs> without spoiling it. <laughs> and I should just say now, like, it's worth the read, even if you do know the ending, you know? Like, I, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, um, one of my favorite things about Vonnegut is how concise and how many small thoughts come through his books. So it's, the overarching story is one thing, but then there's a whole bunch of, like, micro-narratives that's just, like... It's almost episodic. A lot of little tiny things. Yeah, that's so true. And the chapters are so, so short. Mm -hmm. Um, When you handed this to me, you you handed it to me literally on a a Kindle. You let me borrow your Kindle so I could (laughs) read it. Thank you for that. Welcome. It gets expensive trying to buy books, so I beg, borrow, and... Uh, steel is not what I do, but you know, yeah. I well, books where I can. it's hard to find because, like, you know, everyone likes Slaughterhouse Five. Like, everyone has to read it, mm-hmm. but I really think that that's one of his like least interesting books. That's a controversial opinion. It is. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. Well, but why? Why? 
tease that thought out more. Why do you why do you think Mother Nine is better? I think it's more complicated than Slaughterhouse Five. Slaughterhouse Five is a great one about his experience with Dresden and the fire bombings and trying to like cope with all of that. But Mother Night is, like I said, anyone who's dealt with imposter syndrome, um, who's dealt with like actions they, they don't fully believe in that they've committed. Um, it's everyone's dealt with that from what I've gathered. Um, so I think it's just more generalized than Slaughterhouse Five. Slaughterhouse Five is like if you want to get underneath the skin and understand how he's processing trauma to a degree. I think it makes sense, but that's, I don't think that's how most people really read Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. I've never read Slaughterhouse Five. In fact, this was my very first Vonnegut book. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited to read more of them. I don't know. I, uh, I wasn't expecting this to be what it was going to be when I picked it up. And I talked about that in the review some. I wasn't prepared for a World War II novel. <laughs> it was like a throat punch. I was just like, oh my gosh, okay, here I go. We're reading about Nazis. We're reading about hard things and all this stuff. And, and off to the races. So the novel begins with Vonnegut setting up a frame story, which is that he received these papers from some person, right? He just got this stuff and he's just editing it it's not really mm -hmm. it's not really his writing it has nothing to do with him he's just compiling and editing for the wider public and i i, I always love certain stories i think they're great <laughs> well i think he's what he's also trying to do is distance himself again so like just like the main character distances himself from his actions he's also trying to distance himself from the novel so it's just like a no, it's it's getting meta, right? Yes. It, that's that's Vonnegut for you. The meta narrative of the meta narrative of the meta character. Um, well, I think the beginning of the novel, he's like, this is the one novel that I know has a moral. Um, yes. And he's just like, it's you are who you pretend to be. I, I'm paraphrasing something like that. We're going to read the quote of it because I looked it up. He says, this is the only story of mine whose moral I know. I don't think it's a marvelous moral. I just happen to know what it is. And it is, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Yeah. Um, this is also from the guy who, in, I think it's Breakfast for Champions, talks about, so in that one, he tries to, like, set up, it's a weird book, first of all, but he tries to set up, like, an alternate thought of like how people can create communities. Um, and at one point the, I think it's the main characters are trying to teach kids like what to do. And he goes, there's only one rule kids. God damn it. You got to be kind. Yes. And so like, that's, I feel like that's a good intro to Vonnegut is like, he's sort of crass, but he's also like well-meaning throughout his his investigation on life is that he's he comes with someone who's dealt with so he's like from Minneapolis um from a really well-to-do family that lost his fair uh his parents lost all of the riches mm. and then he has to like deal with it afterwards um so he's had to like learn hard times after being well-to-do and 
Yeah, it's you can see that in his like novelization that he's like very he understands what is it is to go through hard issues and hard times and investigate that, but he also still tries to view it with a lens of compassion, which is interesting. I think that's what hits home a lot with people who read his other works, is that it's it's always investigating like human emotions and human like not I guess impulses, uh, motivations, but then also being like, well, what about this? And tries to always end up being optimist, even though the world is shit. <laughs> Sorry, am I allowed to cuss? <laughs> I forgot about this. That's all right. You can cuss. Um, I, I, it's funny that you say optimist about Vonnegut. Um, I've talked to other people um, about Vonnegut. In fact, about an upcoming uh, book I'm doing, Cat's Cradle, for one of my bookstore reviews. So super pumped about that. Um, I say I'm excited about it, but the review I got from this other reader, um, was that it's so darkly pessimistic, which makes sense to me because my read of Vonnegut is pretty pessimistic, right? You end this story and he's just sort of lying in his own, like, nonsense of life you know he can't he essentially can't bear to be with himself anymore and Mm -hmm. that's that's the end like he's he's done he's done with the world right yeah it's pessimistic why why do you say it's optimistic um because he always has he's always striving for something better he it's i guess it's more of like the optimist of uh, progressivism right he's always trying to progress to something better he admits that the current state of affairs might not be pretty but he still believes that there are there's hope. Um, I will say, Cat's Cradle is probably one of the more like pessimistic ones. There are some like funny scenes that he he still makes jokes throughout the novel. But if yeah, I guess if you think about the story from point A to point B in a synopsis, you miss a lot of that like fun levity in between because it's it is he's a weird author. Um, I read that he basically, like, he would sit down and he would just edit the crap out of his work to the point where he knew what jokes hit, which ones didn't, um, throughout the whole novel. So it's, I have a hard time saying, like, he's a pure optimist or that he's a pure pessimist. It's more of, he struggles with the realities of life, but he also wants to make it a little lighthearted even if that's dark humor, um, because a lot of it is dark humor. Like in the novel, um, one of my, I wouldn't say favorite, but like an interesting concept is where one soldier, he has cigarettes and he wants to get more because that's the currency during that time. And he's like, well, I have my motorcycle or I have my wife. I need to choose between the two. And he chooses the motorcycle because yes, he, he loves it so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think uh to avoid being reductionist about this, we could say that partly Vonnegut's work is to paint uh, a a moralizing picture in some way, I think. Okay, yeah. Um so that you can go totally pessimist like in Cat's Cradle or have a pessimistic ending like in this book. Um, and the point is to sort of 
make you laugh at life in spite of the darkness of it, which is back to that dark humor that you were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, and in this book, if you take Vonnegut at his word, it is actually moralizing that be careful who you pretend to be because you'll become that. Anyway, yeah. you had a thought. Oh, uh, no, I was going to go back to Cat's Cradle because uh, that was actually the book that gave him his master's in sociology. Um, yeah, it was post um, studies, but he was granted, I'm not sure exactly the term, but probably a uh, honorary master's in sociology from that because there is that huge like religious component to, to that one. Um, but even then, it's it's oddly lighthearted to a degree. It's it's really whether you read into the episodes or whether you read the whole arc because the whole arc is just weird. The arc. I'm so excited to read this book. <laughs> I really am. I, I like picking up things that are, um, that two different people like feel totally different about. I'm super, super excited because you seem to really like it. This other person really did not like it. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say like that's my favorite, like one of my favorite Vonnegut's, um, but it, I liked the first half, I would say. Um, I thought there were some really funny moments. It's a fairly creative sci-fi-ish novel. Because, um, yeah, he would even say that he is, first and foremost, a sci-fi novelist. Which is interesting, because, like you said, um, Mother Night is just set in World War II. Like, there's nothing sci-fi about it. Yeah, and I talked in my review a little bit about the feeling that this book is an anachrony, that it's out of time in some Mm. way. Um, It doesn't feel quite like it belongs in 2019. And it very much sinks you into that post-war era of just the listlessness of trying to get back to normal after the Holocaust. Like, how do you get back to normal after the Holocaust? You Mm. you really can't, right? And that's the character struggles with that. getting back to normal after the actions that he feels that he participated in and did participate in or didn't at times participate in. Um, And he never really succeeds at getting back to normal, right? Um, Anyway, the anachrony piece of this is to say, still, those things in the book really seemed impactful today in terms of... uh, the political nature. <laughs> so I don't know if you have any thoughts on Vonnegut and politics. But like. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I don't think he would ever consider himself like full, like political in nature, but he is definitely more, like I said, progressive. He, he thought that the status quo isn't where we should be and that we should always struggle for better. So like I was saying in, um, Breakfast of Champions, he provides more of a a new way of providing communities. And he calls it artificial families, um, if I remember correctly, where everyone gets two middle names that are just contrived, completely contrived by the government, but those become your contrived families. So, like, you meet someone else who has that middle name, and you are related in a not... Like, in a superficial way, but you will also, the idea is that you take care of one another. So you have someone at least to tie to. If your, you know, um, birth families don't really take care of you, you have another sub- subsection of people. Hmm. So, I don't know, that's 
speaks more to his politics in that way. Um, I think there were a couple other things, but I don't remember the novel that well. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was interesting because I think if I remember correctly, those main characters, they end up becoming uh, advisors to the president or to the governing party. And they actually start off as um, ignoramuses and then they go through something. I think it's, that's right, I think it's two people, brother, sister. It gets really weird. I don't understand some of it. Um, but when they're close together, they become much smarter. Um, it gets, like I said, it gets weird. But I feel like he has a lot to say to politics. He's all, like, he considers himself a free thinker. Um, so he's definitely more on the agnostic side where he's like, well, I don't want to think about, I want to be able to openly think about how I believe rather than being told what doctrines to believe. I feel like that sort of answers your question, but not. Sure. Yeah. That's good. Let's go back to setting and talk about post-World War II as a moment in time. How did you find yourself connecting with the novel in terms of the setting that it provided? You know, I didn't really connect with it on a setting level. I mean, I was not in this world. I wasn't even a thought um, at that time. So the setting really wasn't that important to me. Um, it was more of like a story literary device um, to explore his thoughts on the separation of your actions from your person. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, your ontology versus your actions. To So um, I didn't really place much in there. I think that it's, I mean, I, we haven't really dealt with a situation like that since then hopefully won't in the future but where you know the world just goes asunder and then we have to collectively figure out how do we make um life happen normal again after dealing with such tragedy such loss um confusion like how do we maintain the status quo afterwards so i think that's really where he was going it's just like it was the perfect stage for his thoughts. But also that's where he lived. That's what he dealt with. I mean, he was, um, I believe he was a firefighter um, and then a soldier and was captured in Dresden, put it on hold during the firebombs, came out, saw the destruction. And that's how Slaughterhouse-Five happened, is him processing through that information. Um yeah, so I think it's more of just what he knew, and then it was a great setting piece for that investigation of his themes. Yeah, I think it worked really well. Um, and for, for me now, I, I said in the review, it functions kind of like a time capsule, um, and I think an important one. This is also a love story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird love story. It really is. Um, do you want to continue or should I just... Go for it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, he falls in love while he's being a spy for the U.S. government with... He starts... So he starts out as a playwright, and he gets really famous as a German playwright, um, writing plays and musicals and operas about 
Nazi Germany. And he becomes famous. And he finds someone who is a German um, fascist, for a better word, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and it's interesting seeing him try to deal with his love, who also supports Nazi Germany while he's trying to dismantle it from the inside. What a disconnected <laughs> nonsense. Nonsense love story. But, okay. This is... Uh, Trying to think of how to say this. So, is there a what? Do you, what do you think Vonnegut's trying to do with with that connection? Um, I don't remember Vonnegut's relationship history, but I'm guessing it's probably tumultuous, <laughs> and so he's <laughs> uh, he's probably just investigating his own <laughs> insecurities around relationships. To be perfectly honest, I think it's more of just him being like, this is how I felt in my relationship to a lesser degree. <laughs> Gosh, would want to get married to a fascist? Probably not. No, I'm sorry. Um, to a greater degree. To a greater, a greater degree. degree. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so his his love is presumed dead in Dresden, right? Um, I don't remember the city, um, but yeah, presumed dead. Um, she went on a trip, I think, and then she just didn't come back. And he, middle of the story, he finds himself in a small apartment trying to live life normally in New York, but very quiet. And yeah, tries to like figure out what happened to her and then just live. And then this woman shows up at his doorstep. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Okay. I don't know. We may cut it out. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah, so a woman shows up and like, oh, I am, well, her name's Helga. I'm Helga, and she actually comes with a band of white supremacists during that time. She does. Yeah, and they're like, you will be the, like, the spokesman for our group, because you did so well in Germany. <laughs> and he's like, get out. He's like, <laughs> I don't know how to process this. You look like her, and I love you, but also... I hate this whole organization and I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> so, so here's where I connected so deeply to this book. The, the themes that it deals with in terms of fascism and white supremacy, frankly, are the same ones we're still dealing with today. It felt both like an anachrony, like it was okay. out of time and in its time. It feels so 2019 in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I could see it because, yeah, they, they do talk about white supremacists quite often in the book. And just the, I guess, how quickly someone latches onto an idea and just will not let hold of it. Because I think he tries to talk them out of it for a little bit, and then it ends up devolving into a fist fight as he refuses to go. It's one of the funniest scenes in the book, is the fist fight. <laughs> just like raucous, rolling around on the ground and like things just littering the floor. He's so careful to paint the scene of this apartment. Mm -hmm. I actually, I'm, I've talked about this before. I read really fast and I also am not a very visual person. I don't just create scenes in my head for fun. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the things I struggle with most when I'm writing novels is to create a scene from scratch. 
it just doesn't come naturally to me. So I have a set of stock images in my head that I go to. (laughs) (laughs) So same scene, different players. Yes. Every Victorian (laughs) house, every Victorian house and every romance novel I read, it looks the same. It's got the same drawing room. The same butler shows up to answer the door. (laughs) It's ridiculous. You would think I would be more creative about it, but, um, I sometimes get jolted out of that entirely um, and and run across a scene that creates this totally new thing in my head. And that happened for me with Vonnegut in this apartment. And I was so excited because I definitely <laughs> have my like New York stock apartment mm-hmm. in my head that I've been working with since I was 13. And I read some book about the Great Depression. Like every New York apartment looks like that book's apartment in my head. But this one didn't. And... All right, I don't remember the apartment that well, but I think it wasn't there just like paintings strung about because he was hanging out with his neighbor and they were learning to paint together. I believe so. Um, It was just, for whatever reason, it just popped off the page in my head at the time. I don't know that I could go back to the details Mm. now. Let's say these things don't necessarily stick in my head forever. Yeah. I do remember. You remember that the painting was made. Yes, and the feeling of it was alive. The imagery of it seemed alive in my head in a way that often scenes don't feel so alive. Well, because, yeah, I mean, like I said, he's he edits very carefully um, his novels to the point where he's like, this is what I, like, this is the condensed thoughts that I need. And I think the apartment was a huge part of it because that's all he did during after post-war in between trials and uh, the war ending is just living in that apartment. So that apartment was almost his life uh, encapsulated. And so like all he did was hang out with his neighbor and learn to paint and talk about literature and just like be bros with the guy. Um, and so like that, his apartment was a part of him. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's how we deal with our apartments anyways. Right. It's like, that is almost a uh, capsulation of who we are. That's so true. That's so true. And, and there wasn't much in it and he didn't write, right? Like he spent all that time as a playwright and then he just gave it up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, it was empty. Like, he just didn't, after playing a part for so long and then no longer having to play the part, he didn't know who he was um, at the end. He was just, I mean, I guess he was a, you know, Tabula Rasa. He was a blank slate, again, trying to figure out how to uh, fill his life. And then he tried to find painting, and it was, it kept the time, but it wasn't who he was. It's back to that moral at the at the top that we talked about. We be careful who you pretend to be, or you'll become who you pretend to be. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and he knew he didn't want to be who he was pretending to be, so he exactly at the end he was just I zero. He was nothing. He was just some guy in a small New York apartment trying to not be found out. And then trying to be found out, and then trying not to be found out, and trying to be exonerated, and then just, and then what, right? And yeah. Then, and then what do you do with all of that at the end of it? Or talk about the repeated phrase, uh, the schizophrenia of the spy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, do, I dealt with it in the review in depth. 
So is that a term in the book? Yeah. Okay. It gets used a lot. Um, I think like five times. I'm I'm making that number up, but it felt like it felt like five times in my head. Um, to describe the to the fragmented um, nature of existing when you're living in between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, fragmented is actually a good word. I just came off of recording another podcast on uh, someone the the center cannot hold by Ellen Sachs. Um, talking about her journey through schizophrenia and she describes the schizophrenic mind as shattered so if you carry that metaphor over from from her words and you put it here and you think about the schizophrenia of the spy you might say that this is a shattering life so it's kind of no wonder that he winds up at the end of his existence as a double agent um shattered and there's no pieces left put together mm-hmm. really an interesting picture of, of a really really tough tough situation to be in yeah and i i feel like everyone like i said every adult like the longer you live the more you've experienced something like that where maybe it's just the fact that like seasons of life changes but you know at one point you are the kid and one point you're the teenager the college student the the parent the grandparent and each season you feel you're the same person but it's just slightly different um so everyone's dealt with that role change which sort of leads to a little bit of like fractured state of being right because you're creating a new role and a new existence for yourself that's really true um and then sometimes things shatter us sometimes things are that hard Mm-hmm. that we don't know how to come back from it. And then we end up in that place where we're frozen in time and we can't we can't go back um, to what we were before. Mm-hmm. He certainly can't go back to what he was before. Oh, no. But we can't seem to move forward either. Um, yeah, I guess in a way this book is really about trauma. Yeah. Um, whether it's a... It's, it's definitely a piece where you see... I wouldn't say, like, you just see someone dealing with, like, the worst state of trauma. But everyone, like I said, everyone's been dealt with either imposter syndrome or moving, like, roles, right? But, of course, for some people, it speaks even deeper because they've had to deal with that kind of fractured nature to a point where it's shattered and you have to pick up yourself and figure out what your life and who you are um, by picking up pieces of what you were, and be like, what do I keep? What do I not? Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, and we have to be careful too, because while this person is certainly traumatized, the, what's the reason for the trauma? Well, the reason for the trauma is that he directly and directly in some way, whether with intention or whatever you want to call it, behind it, participated in the Nazi agenda, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Because he existed as this apathetic person before he was converted to the U.S. Um, spy agent. Was it U.S.? Was it Britain? I, I think remember. it was the U.S. I think it was U.S. Um, yeah, some guy just met him at a park and was like, here's the situation. We'll probably need your help. And then didn't hear from him again for a long time. And just were like letters sent to him. I don't remember. I think so. And... 
and he get, eventually accepts the, the mission, right? Um, yeah. But his trauma, his, his life-breaking comes from the fact that he participated in the deaths of so many people in some way. Right? Yeah, and I guess we can end up talking about Machiavelli and ends justifying the means and all that jazz because, I mean, if he fully just thought about it as ends justifying the means, um, his end goal was to win the war against the Nazis who were killing the six million Jews. The only problem is the way in which he was doing it, he was helping incite the rage that were killing six million Jews. So he was actually helping the efficiency in which they were killing. There's Varnaget for you. Yeah. Yeah. Things the most (laughs) absurd and the most extreme. And that's why the white supremacy group, all the way back around to the white supremacy group, shows up at his doorstep is because they remembered listening to him on the broadcast talking about all the things that they wanted to hear. Yeah. And, you know, just reeling them in. And I remember him talking about how absurd the thoughts he was making because he was like, I'm writing this propaganda and it's just absurd to think about the rationale that would take it in. But there are people who are taking it in. And there it is, 2019 again. Well, I mean, I guess we could talk about Alex Jones in this case. <laughs> He's basically the 1944 version of Alex Jones. Yeah. That's all it says. Yeah, but then the uh, question not really. is, not at all. Does, does he believe in what he's saying or not? Does Alex Jones believe in what he's saying? He that's, does, probably. <laughs> I think he probably does. I think that's an answered question. Yeah, that is. Um, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. That was, a, I'm, I'm, I'm swallowing Vonnegut and leaving him at his word. I, I'm suspending disbelief to say that I think that he's totally right in saying that this novel's moral is bound up in that statement, and I keep coming back to it. And I and I want to extend it a little bit here while we're in this moment talking about white supremacy. This is what I did in my review too, to say not only are we who we pretend to be, um, or can we become who we pretend to be, we ought to be on guard against falling asleep to things that encroach into our identity, right? Mm -hmm. If there's something important about jumping out and speaking out against things like white supremacy, and, you know, there's the obvious, but uh, we are, we are always in danger of being encroached on by dangerous ideology, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, And it's important to be on guard against those things. Yeah. Well, so um, what's coming to mind for me is during the Wells Fargo, um, like bank uh, account openings, like the fallacious bank account openings um, and the, like the whole overdraft fees that they were causing and getting that revenue. um, It's interesting to me because the role of the CEO is to increase profits. Pure role is to keep the business going, running um, so that it stays alive, but also increase profits for the shareholders, right? But then you get to the point where the guy is just saying eight is great. And that's why people need to have eight accounts with the bank. And you're like, there's a disconnect from his role as like increasing profits and 
the way in which you can reasonably do that. And it's interesting to see. I remember listening to some of the, I think it was the Congress congressional hearings about it. And there's just a huge disconnect because one is talking from a role of like, Hey, this is my role as CEO. I'm here to like help lead the company to greater profits. That's who I am. Um, I'm to within the frameworks of the law. Um, but outside of written law, that's still free reign. Um, and then the congressional, uh, the elected officials are just like, well, did you think about the outcome of your actions? And he's like, that's not a part of my role. I'm not here to think about the overarching economic um, cog that we are to a certain degree. Like there are people underneath me that probably do think about the like turnings of the economy within the bank. But all he's trying to do is increase profits. And so it's it's interesting when we talk about like we are who we pretend to be, because that's literally his argument is, hey, this is what I was supposed to do. Um, I don't think he ever said that explicitly. It was more of just like understood by the business world that, hey, this is what he's supposed to do. And then the on the other side, they're like, well, you should have thought about how this would affect other people. Yeah. Yeah, you said it better than I did. Absolutely. This is um this is a great example. We are who we pretend to be. Um and this affects so many people where there's like, here's my it's it's a almost a coping mechanism, right? Like here's my sphere of influence. I can only affect this sphere. Um and here's my role within that sphere. Let me compartmentalize further. Um, and at that point, it's hard to figure out those boundaries, right? Um, whether they be like, I am purely a father figure because kids take a lot of time and I don't have time to figure out any other roles in which I exist. Um, or here is what I do for 70 hours a, a week for my job. Um, and I've been so, I wouldn't say indoctrinated, but like, I've been so accustomed to this thought process that it's hard to unravel that thought process to become a generalized human. And then once you've started into that and started compartmentalizing, you start to fall asleep to the things you're not thinking about. Yeah. And that's I mean, when the danger comes in. Right. Ignorance is always the issue. Yeah. <laughs> So the antidote to becoming who you pretend to be is to to think critically about who you're pretending to be mm -hmm. and and want to be that person. Um, Which is the, the beauty of liberal arts to a degree is that you're always critically thinking. Um, of course, education with how it's rolling is we want more efficiency with our workforce. So liberal arts doesn't create efficiency it creates more of hindrances because we think critically all the time oh that's true that's so true well we deliver the antidote anyway right <laughs> <laughs> right oh man i mean that's part of what i want to do you know on here is to spend time taking time to think critically spend time thinking critically uh, about things that we do with our time, which is reading, 
um, and the things that we do in our everyday life. Um, it's part of the point of this. Yeah, I, I feel like, like I said, that's why I think this is a great novel is because it's everyone deals with a role in which they find themselves in, whether they feel that it's who they are uh, innately or they just rise to the occasion. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it. Yeah. Um, before I let you go and say thank you very much for, for coming and talking to me today. Uh, I would love to hear your three recommendations. Okay. If people like what you think about this book um, and want to know more about your brain on reading. Yeah. So um, big novels that have affected me. Um, I would say my other Kurt Vonnegut, if you're interested in him, is God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. It's about a guy who inherits um, coal money. And then he tries to bring it back where it's equal because his family has basically subjugated the whole town to um, nothingness and has just used their power to make the town just incredibly impoverished. And now he's trying to figure out how to um, give money to that town in a responsible way so that neither. So he feels better about what his family's actions but the town doesn't go crazy with the wealth that he provides. Um, so I really like that one. Um, a darker one is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, for me, that was really interesting because it's so distant, but so emotional at the same time. The, the two main characters, so I don't know if you know about this one. It's about post-apocalyptic father-son duo trying to survive that world and the father and son don't ever get proper names it's always papa or um, son um it's a great novel be in a good place when you read it it's a little rough um and then the third one i'm going to try to do something a little more lighthearted. um one that i remember as a kid was the obsidian chronicles it's a fantasy novel um, about dragons, and I mean, I guess it's still a little, it's got some dark tones to it, uh, but it's fun. There's new dragon mythos that I thought was new and creative. Um, yeah, I think it's like three books. They're sort of hard to find, but they were, I, I remember enjoying them a lot as a kid. Well, it's great. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today about this book. Thank you for having me and, uh, and for the coffee. Yeah, always coffee. <laughs> <laughs>